welcome. Don't worry, you didn't miss the awesome part of my sermon. <laughs> that comes later, uh, hopefully. Um, so I was just saying welcome, huge, huge welcome to everyone. Um, so let's see, we are in part 10 of our series on the Gospel of Luke. And uh, let's see, back in week one, we discussed, um, kind of framed the whole discussion as just naming that this book isn't really like a pure biography of Jesus in the sense that it isn't really expressing like Jesus' own inner journey through life. You know, you're not like in his mind. Um, and neither is it like a pure history of Jesus in the modern sense where someone is presenting kind of an objective, detached account of the life and events of Christ. Uh, instead, we, we said it's something like the literary equivalent of a documentary film. Uh, Luke is kind of like the director. He's interviewed people, he's researched the accounts and experiences of those who follow Jesus, and now he's weaving uh, these narratives uh, together into something really beautiful. So um, that's, that's a good way to kind of think of what the Gospel of Luke as a whole is. Um, so we've been just kind of week by week taking uh, a passage from about every other chapter or so. Uh, so tonight we are in um, Luke chapter 19, and the title of my message is Capitalist Jesus. And uh, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 28. Um, now, a little background before we start reading, though. It, it, the, this whole text, it opens with the line, while they were listening to this, and you might ask, uh, listening to what? Um, so the previous story in this chapter was about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, uh, which in that day basically meant he was corrupt. This is not like working for the IRS today. Uh, tax collectors back in, in the ancient world, they basically made their fortune by extorting people. So he was, uh, he was perceived as just a horrible person. And, and actually, in his case, this was not just a stereotype. Uh, we find that out in the story. He really was, um, he was real bad, <laughs> bad person. Um, however, he was intrigued by Jesus. So he famously, if you know the story, he, he climbed a tree to get a look at Christ since he was uh, blocked by the crowds. And he's up in this tree. Jesus um, saw him and said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. And the crowd, the people, like knew Zacchaeus, knew what a turdy is. And so they, they, the text literally says like the people started grumbling about this because Jesus was going to the house of a known sinner. And you know, when you go to someone's house, it's kind of like a form of acceptance of them, like kind of being buddy-buddy with them. Uh, and yet this became a, a really dramatic life-changing moment for Zacchaeus. And in fact, he went on to tell Jesus he made this promise, like, whatever money I have made in immoral ways, I'm going to pay back four times as much. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to this house, to this man. And so that's the background. Then we go right into uh, verse 11 of Luke chapter 19. It says this, while they, that's Zacchaeus, the crowds, while they were listening to this, Jesus went on to tell them a parable. Uh, because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Uh, right, quick caveat now, why would they think this? Well, because a few reasons. Jesus looks to be like the Messiah, God's promised deliverer who will throw off the Roman oppressors. And furthermore, Jesus is doing all these amazing miracles. And then a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, 
has just miraculously pledged to change his ways. I mean, everything wrong with the world is being set right. So the people are starting to think like, here it is, surely the tide is turning, love is winning, the end of all things is near. Uh, in verse 12, Jesus said, so here's the parable. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Now a mina was worth about three months of a, a day laborer's wages. Um, so, you know, we're talking maybe three to $4,000 like in today's wages. Uh, put this money to work, the master said, uh, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned 10 more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. And then another servant came and said, sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. In other words, you, you harvest what you didn't plant. His master replied, verse 22, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. Well, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him. Give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So the way that I read this parable for many years, kind of distasteful as it may have been, uh, went something like this. So in the story, uh, the master slash eventually becomes the king. I read it as though that is Jesus. And then the servants, uh, these are like the disciples slash kind of us, you know, the like believers, Christians. And then the crowds, remember the crowds in it who rejected the king, like they're like, we don't want this man to be king over us. In the story, kind of, I read it as like, they are the, you know, the unbelievers, the unbelieving masses. And so you can sort of see how this, this parable is kind of like a, a, a picture or a microcosm of the larger story of Christ. Like, you can kind of map this little story into the big story. At least that's what I did for a long time. So, you know, Jesus as the crucified one, he's, you know, rejected by the masses, by the crowds. But, you know, when he returns, you know, at the second coming, he, he will return now as the king. Uh, but before he ascended to the father, before he, he left, um, he, he commissioned us, right? His servants, 
to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he commanded us. And so now it's our job you know, to spread the good news. But of course, uh, as our creator, um, he has, you know, he's kind of given each of us like a, a talent or a gift, or a way of being that spreads God's love, God's love and message to the world. Uh, and this, as I understood it, was like represented by the coin, by the mina. Right? We are the servants. Christ has gone away, but he has left us with a mina. And so we are um, taught often that you know, the question that this passage leaves us with is, how will you multiply what God has given you? Right? How, how will you use it for his glory? Will you use it wisely or foolishly? And this is no small question. Like this is an eternal question because the idea runs, if you use it wisely, then you will gain an eternal reward, heaven. You will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But if you are afraid, if you do not use your gifts, then it's possible you may have to join the throngs of people who the king, right, AKA Christ, says in verse 27, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Uh, in other words, the way I understood it, you will be eternally damned. Now, uh, normally I would, that last part, we would kind of leave that out. And instead we would just tend to zero in on the idea, you know, of using what God has given us. Uh, in other words, this passage is about stewardship. That's a more, um, that preaches a little easier than the, you know, verse 27, <laughs> kill them all. Um, like, uh, in other words, when I say stewardship, you know, it's how will we steward the money, the gifts, the time, the energy, you know, God has given us. Will we hide and waste it like the third servant or will we multiply it like the first two? Will we steward well the little God has given us so that he, you know, eventually entrusts to us more? Um, so that's how I read this, this passage for many years. It's how probably, I don't know, what, five, six, seven years ago, I probably would have preached it um, maybe back, maybe farther than that but I would appreciate along these lines. Uh, tonight, though, I'm going to contend that that is a bad reading of this story. And I wanna give you at least two reasons that I think it's, it's a very poor um, reading of, of the text. So let me give you these two reasons. A, uh, it fails to understand the passage in the context of the ancient world, of the Gospel of Luke um, as a whole book, and even just chapter 19. Like to start there, remember uh, this parable, it came right on the heels of the story, right? Remember the story I told you about a very unscrupulous, terrible man who could say things like, whatever I have defrauded people of, I will pay back four times as much. In other words, Zacchaeus was not a man, was not a servant who hid his minas. Uh, now, this immediately kind of leads us into a whole thread, a whole discussion of like money and lending and interest. Um, and, and, you know, we live in a certain epoch, a certain time and culture. And so we are, of course, powerfully shaped by that culture to have certain things that are, you know, normal. Um, and so to our ears, for example, the servants who made their money work for them, uh, we're just being wise. Like they probably invested in Apple stock or something right before Steve Jobs came back, you know, in 1996. 
uh, like like the king in the story said, right? They're just they're just wise servants. Um, but you got to keep in mind that just because we hear that, like, oh, what, how wise of them, um, you know, two thousand years ago when this when Jesus was telling this parable, um, it was a very different world. There was no stock market. The world was a very different place. And while today the argument could be made. Uh, that you know, when someone makes far more money than they need to live on, they're not necessarily stealing from others. You know, from the poor, it could be argued. You know, they're part of an expanding pie. Um, you know, for example, through technology and such, we you know we expand the pie, and so it's a world of abundance. And so, for me to have a bigger slice of the pie is not to take from your slice, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's an argument that could be made um, today. I, I'm kind of. Um, bracketing that off to the side and saying, okay, that's an interesting conversation, um, but I want us to get back to the ancient world. So in the ancient world, remember, technology was happening at a snail's pace. I mean, the pie, if it was expanding like at all, uh, it was very slow. And this becomes really important because keep in mind, if you were now making huge gains on your money, uh, you were probably being exploitative. Uh, theologian Richard Rohrbach, he has done a lot of research into this this parable in, in the ancient world, and he unpacks this um, by explaining that as you know, 21st century Americans, we hear the story and we're like, yeah, those first two servants, they just sound like good business owners to me. Um, but to a first century Jewish peasant's ears, which is largely, this was who Jesus was preaching to, um, someone who is given amount X and then in a few months or even years, turns it into 5x or 10x, like 10 times the return? Are you kidding me? Like, and they, they're shady. That's, that's probably how they would have seen these first two servants. Like the, in other words, they are who? They're Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, right? The, I mean, like, um, think of it like this, even according to the book of Deuteronomy, um, you were not allowed to charge a fellow Israelite interest. You could charge foreigners interest, but you couldn't charge a fellow um, you know, Jewish brother or sister interest. Why? Um, because the idea was basically um, that, you know, I mean, if you lent them money, you, you did expect them to pay it back, but not with extra because the idea is they're your brother, your sister, your countrymen, you know, your fellow Israelite. And if you'll recall my message a few weeks back when we were in Luke chapter 6, um, do you remember Jesus? He was teaching on this subject of, you know, money and lending and all that. And uh, remember Luke 6, verse 35. Remember what Jesus said? Lend to, not just your friends, lend to your enemies without expecting to be repaid. Okay, so all that kind of coming together, I suspect the original audience of this parable was not thinking well, those servants who made 5 and 10x, like they sure were industrious, good people, true examples for us all. No, I think we should see them as someone engaging in exploitative economic practices. Okay, so that's like, that's the first reason. I think um, our usual reading of this story is just not a good one because it doesn't really make sense in, in light of the ancient peasant perspective, um, in light of the Gospel of Luke you know, as a whole, thinking back to Luke chapter 6, Jesus teaching, and even chapter 19, thinking of Zacchaeus, right? He tells the story right on the heels of a man who was awesome at turning money into more money by abusing people. Uh, so, okay, so that's point A. Uh, point B, second reason. 
uh, I think that this reading is, is kind of off, our usual reading is off, is that the king in the story is not even remotely Christ-like. Uh, I think in many ways the text kind of just stands for itself. Verse, let's go back and read verse 20 uh, again. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. You reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in, reaping what I did not sow. And then verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, Bring them here and kill them in front of me. So here's what's weird. Fast forward 2,000 years, and we're all teaching this passage and, you know, preaching it and teaching in Sunday school to little kids, and we're like, okay, so the king is Jesus. <laughs> like, what, what are we thinking? Have we lost our ever-loving minds? That's what my mom used to say to me. Brett, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Have we lost our ever-loving interpretive Bible-reading minds? To be fair, uh, I, and I deal with this a lot in my e-letters, I think some of the reason we do this kind of easy reading, this easy mapping of Jesus and, and you know the God onto someone in a story that's this terrible, um, is because you know in the Bible it's true that God is imaged in some some really kind of toe curling difficult um, ways. Uh, so which is why we have to keep returning. I mean, I do this. It feels like every other week. I'm going to keep doing it. We've got to keep returning to Christ and his words that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? The Father and I are one. This is often what we do, though, is we tease these apart. Like, sure, Jesus is nice. Yes, Jesus, he's great. But, you know, God, the Father, you got to watch out for him because he will say things like, bring them in front of me and murder them all to revenge, you know? And like, what are we? No, no. Uh, and this is why, as as Brian Zahn uh, says, he's a pastor, um, he says, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. Uh, that's I, I just think we have to keep returning to that truth. So that's And that's the second reason I think we need a radically new reading of this story, simply because, you know, a key interpretive thing is who is the king. And, and yet the king, in, in terms of his character, is not at all like Jesus. Jesus. Okay. So you say, Brett, I see your point. Uh, what is a proper reading of the story, or at least a, a better one? And I think the text has um, actually has a very unlikely hero. I think uh, we are actually supposed to sympathize with this third servant, the one who simply returned the coin, uh, as opposed to exploiting others to, to make it increase. And I think the king in the story uh, is not the God we've come to know in Jesus. Um, I think there's there's actually historical arguments that um, this was uh, kind of a various, like maybe a ruler like Herod or someone. Um, but but I'll say even apart from just the historical rootedness of it, I think at the very least we could say it's, it's simply that that king, that master is kind of representative of um, the false gods of this world. Uh, the gods of money and power, uh, systems of, of exploitation and oppression, which means we've literally, uh, I mean, if you contrast that reading with the one I gave earlier, uh, I mean, what I'm suggesting is that we've read the story in the complete opposite way 
<laughs> that we uh, we should have. So, okay, so what, this, what does this mean for our lives? Like, what's the main takeaway? Um, Here's, here's a point for tonight. So if you're, if you're a note taker, you can jot this down. Um, the status quo in the kingdom of God are less aligned than we normally believe. Status quo, the kingdom of God are less aligned than we normally believe. I mean, just the fact that I could read this parable for years as capitalist Jesus telling his servants to turn a fat profit regardless of how they do it, I mean, look, like looking back on it, that just sounds insane. And yet, you know, I just like, that's how I did it. Uh, and I think this points to the fact that my, in my own little brain, my default mode is to believe that Jesus and his agenda, uh, like it is basically it's aligned with my agenda, right? Let me say it again. Like the default mode is for us to believe that Jesus and his agenda, his kingdom, are aligned with with our agenda, our kingdom. But if there's anything we should actually take from the parable, it's that Jesus is actually pushing back on the status quo, as uncomfortable as it might make us feel, far from a capitalist Jesus extolling the wonders, you know, of turning awesome prophets, uh, Jesus seems to be actually critiquing the economic system of his day. Um, now, perhaps I'm making some of you nervous, I don't know, uh, so let me, let me just be clear. Does this mean, you know, that in place of capitalist Jesus, who by the way is kind of a popular Jesus out in the culture, um, that I plan to put before you, I don't know, something like neo-Marxist Jesus and to say, you know, the kingdom of God is actually aligned with um, neo-Marxism. Uh, no, what, what I'm saying is this, the kingdom of God will never be perfectly aligned with any of our isms. See, Jesus is Lord. Our isms are not. Whether that ism is capitalism, Marxism, conservatism, liberalism, feminism, patriarchalism, modernism, postmodernism, and I mean, I could just go on and on. And if you think you, you have an, an ism that is ultimate, that is Lord, and whether that's an ism uh, you know, on the political left, or the political right, uh, then probably what we should do is go ahead and just worship that, right? Uh, because the truth is, Jesus uh, is not a capitalist. Jesus is not a Marxist. Jesus is not a conservative. Jesus is not a liberal. Jesus is the Lord, which means as Christians, the isms that we endorse, and by the way, if, if you hear me saying in all this, like, you know, have no isms, have no beliefs, like, I have some isms I endorse. Why? Because I'm a human being and I live in the world. And I'm not even saying that's sin. Like, I have to believe things, right? And make decisions. And, and I have certain ways of framing and understanding culture. Um, but here's the key. To be Christian is always um, to hold tightly to Christ and loosely to my isms. If you don't hear anything else tonight, hear that. Like to be Christian is to hold tightly to Christ, right? To center on him, to be grounded and rooted in him. And then it doesn't mean I don't have other things, other beliefs, other ways of you know, understanding the world, but, but I'm holding those things loosely knowing that at best they may temporarily align with the kingdom of God, but just as easily may soon 
become demonic. Um, I realize this is, I just, I can't really can't overemphasize how important I feel like this is um, for us, not only because we're in election season and all that, um, but it's, I, I do see a sort of a continual um, thing. I see in people's lives. I mostly see it online. You know, as people are very open with their beliefs and their isms there. Um, that it's just, it's very easy to put, I mean, for example, in our culture, right? Patriotism, right? This, this love of country so easily starts to um, supersede our commitment to Christ. Uh, this becomes a huge problem. And this is why I really believe we need eclectic and eclectic Christian community. This is, if you're, you've been a part of the table, you know that's one of our values, thoughtful, inclusive, eclectic. Uh, and that means, you know, different. We need, we need eclectic people, eclectic Christian community. And then we need honest conversation with people, with those folks who believe different isms than we do. Why? Because iron sharpens iron. Because they can say, hey, Brett, that thing that you think is the kingdom of God, and you're just sure that God's in that, you know, I, uh, I don't think it's the kingdom of God. <laughs> and, right, and vice versa. And somewhere in that process, in that conversation, the Holy Spirit uh, can meet us, can guide us forward. All right. Another light and breezy message at the table. <laughs> so we're actually gonna close out uh, by watching a, a video that I, I hope kind of frames up in a way everything we've been talking about. Hope it'll put it in a little bit lighter um, tone as well. Um, but before we go ahead and watch that, let me, uh, let me pray for you. Jesus, would you, um, in this time, God, in this, this, this season of um, polarization and uh, lots of opinions, um, God, would you keep us centered on you? May we hold tightly to you and loosely um, to our isms. God, may your grace um, just rest on each person who's hearing my voice. May we be filled with love, filled with humility um, to counterbalance our conviction, God. And may, may we be um, a light to, to people. May, may us as individuals, may our community be, be a light uh, of learning to live, to love, to walk together uh, in the midst of difference. And God, may we, may we keep you central in everything we do. In the powerful name of Christ, I pray. Amen.